how are folks enjoying the book of Ezekiel? Much better than he enjoyed it. Well, yeah, that's true. A lot better than Ezekiel enjoyed going through it. I well, I mean, are you finding as you read it that you can, that you can understand it? Yeah, that, that's, that's been my impression. I mean, Ezekiel, he gets a bad rap for actually good reason, but we haven't got there yet. <laughs> um, when you get to the end of the book, you, you'll see why Ezekiel kind of has a reputation for being hard to understand, because he is hard to understand. But in the chapters we've read so far, except for the weird, you know, chapter one, it's been very straightforward. Um, and it appears to me even that the story goes in chronological order. Now, unlike Jeremiah, that, that we found him jumping all around, it was just hard to keep track of. You know, who's he talking to now? This one is just very straightforward. And um, of course, it, it, I think it helps the fact that we've already done Jeremiah because Ezekiel is saying much the same thing that Jeremiah said because they both prophesied at exactly the same time but in different places. Where was Jeremiah when he was prophesying? He's in Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem. Where was Ezekiel? He was in the, in, in the area of Babylon. Um, well, if Ezekiel was in Babylon, how does he see all those things going on at the temple? Remember he saw the people bowing down to the sun at the temple? That was a vision. Yeah, you know, the Holy Spirit had taken him and you know grabbed a piece of a lock of his hair and carried him off to Jerusalem. So, um, yeah, he was teleported. <laughs> um, all right. So um, let me see here. So here's our outline. I've put in red the section we're in right now. Last time we did Ezekiel's call and commission. And we did a good part of the judgment against Judah and Jerusalem. And this morning we're scheduled to finish that section. I'm not sure we're going to actually get all that way because I've, I'm already behind from last week. But we'll catch up next week. It's, it's an easier one. But anyway, this, this whole section is a very simple section for us to understand because Jeremiah has done it all for us already. You know, the prophecies against Judah and Jerusalem, same thing Jeremiah said. Although Ezekiel has a... a um, oftentimes a rather novel way of, of uh, doing its prophecies. Um, I guess most every prophet is unique in some way, but with Ezekiel, how, does, how do a lot of these prophecies get done? Yeah, he would act them out. And there was one other thing that was unusual about Ezekiel, maybe more than one, but um, you remember about when he was able to talk? Yeah, when the Lord gave, and it appears, it appears to me that he was actually mute, couldn't speak. In between, so he would probably go for months without speaking, which I again pretty hard on the guy. Um, and I'm sure everyone got to know the fact that you know here's the guy that can't talk, but then every so often he can, and what he says is wow, you know this is pretty powerful stuff. Um, so God was of course doing that to try to get people's attention. <clears throat> All right, so we're, we're up to chapter... Um, well, no, actually, I've got to show you the time chart as well. Um, remember the first deportation was a deportation of one person. Jehoaz was taken prisoner to Egypt by Pharaoh. Um, then one that was not mentioned in, um, in the book of Jeremiah 
not mentioned in Ezekiel either, as far as I can tell, was when Daniel and some royal hostages were taken um, just a couple years into the reign of Jehoiakim, who was a really bad king. Because for that matter, every one of these kings was bad. Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, every one of them was bad. Who, who was the king right before these guys? Not on the chart. Josiah. Josiah. Good or bad? Yeah, he was re- re- very good. But three of his sons, one of his grandsons reigned, and they were all bad. Um, in 597, at the end of a three-month reign, Jehoiakim and about 10,000 other people were taken captive, including Ezekiel, the one we're reading from. So, And Ezekiel did not start his prophecy until after he was in Babylon. So this section here, from 597 down to 586, is where we're reading right now. <coughs> now, he actually kept prophesying beyond 586. We just haven't got that far. So, and in our section, when he says that, you know, it came about in the seventh year, he means the seventh year of his captivity. So you take 597, you subtract 7, and that would be 590, if he says the seventh year, you know, 589 to 590. Um, and we'll see one here where it's like, I think the ninth year, we've got one this morning that's in the ninth year, um, which was just almost before the final. Captivity, 584. All right, so now we'll we'll look at chapter 12. This is left over from last week. Um, Ezekiel acts out going into exile, another one of his uh, pantomime things. Um, So among other things, verse 4, God tells him, bring your baggage out by day in their sight as baggage for exile. Then you will go out at evening in their sight as those going into exile. Dig a hole through the wall in their sight and go out through it. Load the baggage on your shoulder in their sight and carry it out in the dark. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have set you as a sign to the house of Israel. (coughs) So here is this guy that he's mute. He's just acting these things out. People are watching. Boy, this guy's weird, you know. And they're wanting to know what's going on. Uh, and let me ask, why is he covering his face so he can't see the land? That's actually a description of what God would be towards the land. He's acting up for Zedekiah who's blind. Yeah, later on it explains. It's it's because he's acting out the part of the prince. He calls him the prince, but that's Zedekiah. And why couldn't Zedekiah see the land when he got to Babylon? Yeah, he'd been blinded by by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so all this was being prophesied in a very memorable way. <laughs> I mean, think about it. If you, if you came this morning and instead of hearing a sermon, you saw someone acting like this, you'd remember this a lot longer than you remember the sermon. <laughs> Alright, so then in verse 9, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the, the rebellious house, said to you, what are you doing? They've been asking, but he can't answer, of course. So say to them, Thus says the Lord God, This burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem, as well as all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am assigned to you. As I have done, so it will be done to them. They will go into exile, into captivity. And then he says in verse 12, The prince who is among them will load his baggage on his shoulder in the dark and go out. 
They will dig a hole through the wall to bring it out. He will cover his face so that he cannot see the land with his eyes. I will also spread my net over him and he will be caught in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he will not see it, though he will die there. Now, I don't believe that Jeremiah ever prophesied this about him. Um, he, Zedekiah would ask, you know, do you have any word? And the word was, you're going to go to Babylon. You know, you're going to see the king. But I don't think he ever told him he's going to be blinded. And in fact, if he'd done what what Jeremiah told him, he probably wouldn't have gotten blinded. But he didn't have any faith. So down to verse 18. Then there's another. Here he's going to act out something else. Son of man, what is he supposed to do now? Yeah, now I don't know how how long this went on, but I'm sure that again, Ezekiel's neighbors are noticing. You know, you're not eating and drinking the way you normally do. Uh, he's he's just kind of you know terrified here, and um, so then they're gonna you know people people are gonna ask. Well, it doesn't say that, but. God explains to him that this is what the people in Jerusalem are going to do. They're just going to be eating and drinking with terror because everything they've depended upon is just crumbling down around them. Now, in verse 22, he start, he goes moves on to a slightly different topic. Son of man, what is this proverb you people have concerning the land of Israel saying, the days are long and every vision fails? Does that remind you of any New Testament verse? Yeah, where where is the promise of His coming? Ever since our days of our fathers, it's all continues like it is now. Second Peter three verse four, um, and that was the same attitude here. Hey, you know we've heard this, we've heard this for years. Ah, it never comes to pass, and that's the attitude that people have here. So, God's not happy about this, obviously. He says in verse 23, Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I will make this proverb cease so that they will no longer use it as a proverb in Israel, but tell them the days draw near as well as the fulfillment of every vision. And then finally, there's another one even in verse 27. The vision that he sees is for many years from now and he prophesies the times far off. And see, these people are not saying, oh no, nothing's ever going to happen. They're just saying... Oh, yeah, that's a good prophecy, but it's not going to happen for a long, long time. And therefore I say to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever word I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. So, you, just as God warned Ezekiel in chapter 2, I think it was, uh, the people are going to have a hard heart. That's exactly what's happening. Here, all these people have been taken captive... Uh, think about it. The prophets had prophesied they were going to be taken captive. Then they were taken captive. And now Ezekiel prophesies that everyone else is going to be taken captive too. And they say, no, I don't think so. <laughs> what, what would it take to convince these people? And I'm sure Ezekiel must have asked himself that many times. Alright, chapter 13. Prophecy against false prophets. Now we've had this before in both Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. What were the false prophets prophesying? 
Well, good news. Yeah, <laughs> good news, folks. <laughs> the Lord's going to bring all the captives back. It's just going to be wonderful. Well, God has some things to say about that. In verse 3, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. You see falsehood and lying divination who are saying, the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them. Yet, they hope for the fulfillment of their word. <laughs> when I read that, that's just so funny. I hear you got these guys that are prophesying things they know they've made up. But then they expect it to come to pass. <laughs> now to verse 10. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds the wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. And what's he mean here? What's the point of plastering over a wall with whitewash? So you yeah, you can't see the fact that this wall is about to cave in, <clears throat> cover up the cracks. So you're, 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 it's actually worse than if you had done nothing at all. Not only have you not repaired the wall, but now you've hidden the cracks so that no one else is going to repair it either. And it's going to come down and, and do some serious damage. And God's pretty mad about this. Now, in verse 18, he talks to another class of false prophets. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic bands on all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature to hunt down lives. Will you hunt down the lives of my people but preserve the lives of others for yourselves? Now, this sounds very confusing. Um, what I get when I read this is a description of what my dad describes in South Africa, which is a witch doctor. You've got these women who are basically witch doctors, you know, in African terms, um, who, who have, have a lot of power because they can, they can tell, if someone comes and they can tell you who's, who's guilty. I mean, the witch doctors in South Africa, it's just terrible. I mean, if anything bad happens, you know, just a hailstorm or something, you know, just something bad. You can go to the witch doctor and he'll tell you who caused it. And that person might not might have no idea about this. You know, it doesn't matter. It's their fault. And, and um, in years past, I don't know if they're st still able to do this, but year, in years past, the people would have just killed the person who was the cause of that hailstorm, whatever else. And, and so the witch doctor had total power. I mean, he just says the word and somebody dies, and that's what's going on here. The, the, these women are causing innocent people to die. In verse 19, For handfuls of barley and fragments of bread, you have profaned me to my people to put to death some who should not die and to keep others alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. So what a, what a terrible mess um, was going on. It's, it's just it's no wonder God punished the people so severely. All right, the next chapter, chapter 14, even Daniel, Noah, and Job, Job could not deliver Jerusalem. And that's about halfway through the chapter. So the chapter begins when some people came. Who, who came to Ezekiel? Prophets. Uh, no. First ones. Elders of Israel. Yeah, elders means the leaders. Yeah. Um, why are they coming to Ezekiel? 
Yeah, they, they want to get the word of God. Now this is this is wonderful. I mean, this sounds just great. And what was God's attitude about it? God's not going to God's not going to answer them. Verse two, what is their sin? I'm sorry, verse three. <laughs> Idol worship. Yeah, they've set their idols in their hearts. They're. God is not number one in their hearts. And God is not going to be number two in anybody's heart. He's not going to answer anyone who makes Him number two. Um, so he, he goes on in, uh, in verse 4, Speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face a stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes as a prophet... I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols. <laughs> I don't think he's going to want to hear what the Lord has to say at all. Um, and in verse 8, I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. What does it mean if God makes someone a sign and a proverb? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what he means by a proverb is something like someone would say, I hope God makes you like so and so. That's how you become a proverb when, when you've suffered such a terrible judgment that other people use that as a proverb to talk about what's liable to happen to people they don't like. Um, now, in verse 14, he says, But even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness, they can only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. <clears throat> and later on in the chapter, he even mentions they couldn't even deliver their own sons and daughters, these three men. It's not that those three men weren't righteous enough. You're not going to find anybody more righteous than those guys. It's just that the people that God was talking about were so wicked that He wasn't going to allow anyone to escape who was a sinner. And he mentions those three guys again later on um, in the chapter. Let me see here. And then finally, verse 21, For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send My four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, survivors will be left in it who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Behold, they are going to come forth to you and you will see their conduct and actions. Then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem for everything which I have brought upon it. Now, this is a little bit of a strange way to comfort someone. How, why is Ezekiel, Ezekiel going to be comforted when he sees these fugitives that get brought from Jerusalem in the final captivity? They're evil. They're evil. He, the, their behavior is going to be so bad when they get to Babylon. Ezekiel is going to see it. And it, he'll be comforted because he realized that what God did to Jerusalem, they deserved. <laughs> That's how he's going to be comforted by these people coming to him. Alright, chapter 15. Jerusalem is a useless vine. This is a little very short chapter. Um, interesting story. But it goes back. Where have we had the people of God compared to a vine before? Jesus compares Himself. 
Yeah, I am the vine, you're the branches, yes. Um, but before this, where have we had, had it? It may be. I can't think of a place and so on. I know I know a, a righteous person compared to a tree beside the planet beside the waters. Yes, it's Isaiah chapter 5 when he talks about a vineyard and the vine brings forth bad grapes. He says, I, you know, I expected good grapes and all I got from it was bad grapes. What am I going to do? You know, I'm going to tear down the wall around the vineyard and so on and so forth. So, the people would have been familiar with the picture of Jerusalem as a vine. The point is to bring forth fruit for God. And... Um, but now, what is there that the, about the only thing he, he talks about the vine in chapter fifteen is just what? Burning it. Yeah, the wood, the wood of the vine. Uh, and he asks the question: You know, what do people do with the wood of the vine? You know, anybody have have a piece of furniture in your house made out of vine wood? Well, how about if you, uh, as God asks the question, well, okay, well, how about if we burn both ends of the vine and then we char the middle? Then it isn't good, good for anything. <laughs> and that's what Jerusalem is. It's, it's sad. Um, Therefore, verse 6, Thus says the Lord God, As the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. <laughs> Now, chapter 16, and we're finally up to the point where we were supposed to start reading for this week. Um, Jerusalem is an unfaithful wife. Um, and he really gets into the rather graphic um, terms in this chapter to try to shock people into realizing how bad their behavior is. Um, there's one of the minor prophets that has a picture somewhat like this about the people of God being an unfaithful wife. You know, yeah, Linda? Hosea. Yeah, God told Hosea marry this woman uh, of harlotry. And of course, he was predictably very disappointed by her behavior. And Hosea had prophesied some years before this, although we haven't got to him yet in our reading because he's in the Minor Prophets. And you read the Major Prophets, you read the Minor Prophets. Uh, but we will. But anyway, the people would have been familiar with the fact that they are spiritually married to God. And so with that background, look at what God says. In verse 4, As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. Boy, this sounds like a real unwanted baby here. No, I look with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for you were abandoned on the day you were born. That's sad. And he's telling you know, that's, that's the, you know, you people of Israel, that's, that, that's how you started. When I pass by you, who's talking here? God is, yeah. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. And then he goes on about how you know, he, he, he gave her life. And then we jump forward a few years to verse 8. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. 
I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Now, given all that he's talked about so far, what kind of covenant is this? It's a marriage. It's a marriage covenant. Yeah. A marriage is, is talked about as a, as a covenant. And anyone who's here who is married is, has entered into a, a covenant. And what have you promised to do in that covenant? Be faithful. Yeah, be faithful to your spouse. That's what you promised. They don't always say today until death do us part. But whether you say it or not, that's what you're promising when you get married. So, so this, this girl who was just... She wasn't even wanted. I mean, she was thrown into a field to die and God saved her life and now He's married her. Um, so then, let's go down. I can't do every verse here. They're all valuable. But in verse 13, Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your dress was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey and oil. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Where did she get all these things? From her husband. Of course, I mean, she had nothing. I mean, there she is, naked. God's got to cover her up. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect. Because why? Right, because her husband gave it to her. Now, think about this. This applies to us too today. Um. We're not beautiful because of anything we've done. Our beauty is the beauty of Jesus when it's reflected in our lives. And that's what this is talking about here. But in the case of Judah, in verse 15, what was Judah's attitude about all these things? Yeah, she trusted in her beauty. And she played the harlot because of her fame poured out her harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. Um, and it gets, I mean, he gets pretty gross as he talks on like this, but he wants them to understand that their, their behavior going after all these idols was very disgusting. It was just terrible. Um, just, just as it would be, just as poor Hosea suffered horribly when his wife turned back into prostitution. Um, in verse 7, you also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and of my silver which I had given you and made for yourself what? Idols. Yeah. So they could play, so she could play the harlot with them. Um, verse 22. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. No appreciation for what God had done it's all about her, not nothing about God. So in verse 28, Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea, yet even with this you were not satisfied. What's Chaldea? Babylon. Now that's Babylon. Yeah. So this is just looking at their history, how for a while they went after the Assyrians, worshipped the Assyrian gods and, and paid tribute to the Assyrians. Then they turned around and out and then so did the same thing with the Babylonian idols. Um, anything but serving God. Verse 30, How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced prostitute. Harlot. Um, verse 39, 
I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. And then he moves on to a, another related issue when, when he talks about comparing her with, with others. In verse 48, As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters, have not done as you and your daughters have done. What happened to Sodom? Yeah, they were destroyed before, because of their sins. God rained fire and brimstone on them. And that was the end of that. But God said, you're worse. That's pretty bad. But after, after all this, I'm going to jump down to verse 60. After all this, everything God's going to do to them, in verse 60, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. He's not done. He's not done. He's yet going to get a people out of this. Verse 63, So that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. And keep in mind, this is a picture of, of all of us. None of us have been saved because of any, of any righteousness in us. God has given us of His own grace. And, he, and that's the whole point here when He says forgiven. All these things they've done, God's going to forgive them. They're not going to walk in pride at that point. And we must not either. Alright. Um, another parable, chapter 70. This is not an acted out one. This is just a spoken parable. Um, the eagles and the vine. And this is a strange one. You may have had a little bit of trouble even understanding what the point of it was. Um, in verse 3, Thus says the Lord God, A great eagle with great wings, long pinions and a full plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took away the top of the cedar. He plucked off the topmost of its young twigs and brought it to a land of merchants. He set it in a city of traders. And he goes on, he sets up this, you know, he, he sprouts this, this, well you would think if he plucks it off the top of a cedar that it would be a cedar tree, but um, in verse 6 it actually is a vine I mean this is kind of a strange parable uh, but if it's a vine you, you immediately think of you know, the people of Israel but it's not exactly the people of Israel it's one specific person in Israel um, or one I guess person is a little bit too, too specific it's, it's really talking about the royalty in Israel um, and in verse 7, there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. Behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and sent out its branches toward him from the beds where it was planted that he might water it. What, what's happening here, the first eagle is um, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And he came, took captive Jehoiakim. Zedekiah also went to Babylon at some point because we read about that in Jeremiah and Nebuchadnezzar made him swear an oath of loyalty to him sent him back and Zedekiah was in the king appointed by Nebuchadnezzar so Nebuchadnezzar is the first eagle Zedekiah or the royal family is the, um, the vine that is supposed to be loyal to him but this second eagle comes along and who's the second eagle? yeah the second eagle is Egypt 
And so a few years on into, the, on into his reign, Zedekiah gets approached by Egypt. Hey, you know, we'll defend you from Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, that's great. And so the vine turns away from the eagle that planted it and points itself to a new eagle. And God says, Behold, verse 10, verse 10, Behold, though it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not completely wither as soon as the east wind strikes it? Wither on the beds where it grew? The second eagle is not going to be successful with this vine. Um, and so now, here he's going to explain it in verse 12. Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Say, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took its king and princes, and brought them to him in Babylon. He took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him. Here's that word again. Putting him under oath, he also took away the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be in subjection, not exalting itself, but keeping his covenant that it might continue. Now, think about this. This covenant was not something that Zedekiah had a lot of choice on. Um, I mean, Zedekiah had been taken captive to, to Babylon and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I want to make you king. Swear to be loyal to me. <laughs> yeah, that's not, not exactly something that Zedekiah could turn down. But even a covenant made under circumstances like that, God expects Zedekiah to keep. You remember in the psalm when, it's, when it talks about the man of God who swears to his own hurt and does not go back? And this is talking about us today. When we make promises, those are serious. Even a promise like what Zedekiah made under duress, you've got to, you've got to obey that. And, and, and he made an oath before God. God expects him to obey it. Um, let me see. <coughs> Verse 15, But he rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt. They might give him horses and many troops. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Can he indeed break the covenant and escape? And of course the answer is no, he certainly cannot. And Pharaoh is not going to help him either. Uh, so in verse 18, now he despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Behold, he pledged his allegiance, yet did all these things. He shall not escape. So then in verse 22, this has this very interesting ending. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of his young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. What's that about? Hmm? Yeah, this of course is a messianic prophecy. This twig he's going to take from the top of the cedar is going to be Jesus, son of David. And when God plants, it's going to be successful. Although again, we have to be careful that we keep our oaths and that we don't turn our hearts to another eagle either. Alright, chapter 18. This is Some of you probably heard chapter 18 even in sermons. It's very popular and it teaches some very valuable truths. Um, Verse 2, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? <laughs> What's that proverb trying to say? It's not our fault. Yeah, not our fault. That's right. <clears throat> the people could point back and say, well, remember Manasseh, you know, the, 
king going way, way back, Manasseh, he was terrible. And we're, we're having to suffer for him. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will what? Die. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's what this chapter is about. The fact that the one who sins, that's the one who's going to die. Um, and the people don't seem to like this. In verse 19, Yet you say, Why should the Son not bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity? When the Son has practiced justice and righteousness and deserved all my statutes and done them, He shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The Son will not bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity, nor will the Father bear the punishment for the Son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon Himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon Himself. And in verse 23 He says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that He should turn from His ways and live? And of course the answer is no. God does not have any pleasure at all in the death of the wicked. He wants people to be righteous. Verse 29, But the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? <laughs> they just don't want to accept their the responsibility for their own sins. So they want to be able to blame their fathers. Finally, verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore do what? Repent and live. Yeah. Chapter 19, The Lioness and Her Cubs. I mean, this is just a very unique book. We didn't have, in the book of Jeremiah, we didn't have nearly this many parables and things like this. It just makes it much more interesting to read. I'm, I'm sure you found it that way, although you may have puzzled over some of these things. Um, As for you, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What was your mother? A lioness among lions. She lay down among young lions. She reared her cubs. When she brought up one of her cubs, he became a lion, and he learned to tear his prey. He devoured men. Now what happens when a lion starts killing off people? They hunt him down. They hunt him down. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> now, you, you can leave a lion alone as long as he's not bothering people, but if he starts killing people, a man-eating lion, he's got to be hunted down. So then the nations heard about him, that he was captured in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. Now in the parable, he's, there's a, the mother is Israel, and she's a lion, lioness. One of her cubs has started killing people, and so the nations drag him to Egypt. Who is that cub? He's the very first king, the, the son of, of Josiah. He's Jehoahaz, who reigned only three months, and Pharaoh took, bound him in shackles and took him to, to Egypt where he died. So that's who he represents here. So in verse 5, when she saw as she waited that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. What did he do? I <laughs> did the same thing. And so this time, they captured him. And in verse 9, where did they bring him to? To Babylon. Who is he? Who does he represent? Yeah, yeah Jehoiakim. Uh, he also reigned only three months. His dad, Jehoiakim, reigned for years, but he, he got killed at the very end, um, it appears. And, and his son was put on the, on the throne. He reigns for three months. He gets dragged off. Um, to uh, into captivity 
So in verse 14, now he's talking, he goes back to Israel. Now he's talking about Israel as being a vine, of a lioness. A fire has gone out from its branch. It has consumed its shoots and fruit. So that there is not in it a strong branch, a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation and it has become a lamentation. So in this picture, the mother, who originally was a lioness, is now a vine again, but is in such terrible shape that there's no shoots from the vine that are strong enough to, to rule. No kingly material is left, in other words. Zedekiah was, was the king at the time that this was being spoken, but he was not of kingly material. I mean, we, we read about him in Jeremiah. What a coward, you know, just no backbone at all. So it's a lamentation. It's very sad, but it's because God has brought it to this point. He's going he's to punish these people. <clears throat> Alright, chapter 20. Now, we had this earlier. This is interesting. Um, back in chapter 14, we had these elders of Israel coming to, to Ezekiel. And what did God tell them back then? Yeah, I'm not going to speak to you. Well, now, here we are in the seventh year. So time has gone by. The elders come again. And um, what does God say in verse 3 about them? <laughs> Nothing has changed. <laughs> He's still not going to answer them. Um, yeah, so in verse 7 He says, Cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. They rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the deceptible things with their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So now he's going to go through their history here. And so in verse 13, uh, the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. That's back in the days of Moses. And um, but in verse 14, but I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. You remember when Moses told God, said, if you destroy all these people, then the people will blaspheme your name. And they'll say, oh, he couldn't, you know, he brought them out of Egypt, but he couldn't do anything with them, so he killed them all in the wilderness. And God said, I, I, I acted for the sake of my name. That's why I did what I did. And then jumping down to verse 32. What comes into your mind will not come about when you say we will be like the nations, like the tribes of the land, serving wood and stone. God's not going to let them do what they want because he, they're His people. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. <laughs> and verse 35, And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. So, they're going to replay the history when they were taken out of Egypt. They were taken out of Egypt for 40 years and they were, they were in the wilderness. Now they're taken out of Jerusalem and they're going to be in another wilderness. This time the wilderness of slavery to Babylon. But it's during that time that God is going to purify them and, and remove all the, uh, the sin. In verse 38, I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. And then in verse 40, For on my holy mountain, on the holy mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them will serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will seek your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your holy things. 
And that's looking toward the future after he has purified them during this captivity. Chapter 21, the sword of the Lord. Um, God tells Ezekiel about a sword. He's got this sword. I don't... I, I never did figure out in the chapter whether Ezekiel had a sword in his hand. I get the impression that he did and that he was actually acting this out by waving his sword around. <clears throat> but I can't point you to a specific verse on that. But as he acts this out in verse 6, As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan in their sight. So he, I mean, he's got to be very dramatic. It's got, God wants him to act out the fact that he's feeling terrible. And when they say to you, Why do you groan? You should say, because of the news that is coming. And every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will be will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it comes and it will happen, declares the Lord God. The news coming, of course, is the, is the news of the fall of Jerusalem. They're going to hear, hear that news and they're going to feel terrible. So he's groaning in advance to show them what it's going to be like. And then verse 12, Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the officials of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Therefore, strike your thigh. So he's he's being dramatic, you know, just <laughs> waving his hands around and just oh, this is just terrible. Trying to get across to these people what's going to happen. Now he tells a story, verse nineteen. As for you, son of man, make two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. I assume he's just maybe drawing a little road in the dirt or something here. Both of them will go out of one land and make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to the city. You shall mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and to Judah into fortified Jerusalem. Now, which direction does, does Nebuchadnezzar come from? North. So he's coming down from the north. And I don't know exactly where, where this signpost is, but um, at some point before he gets much past, say, Dan, he's got to make a choice. What are the two choices? Jerusalem. Yeah, either go west to Jerusalem or go east down to Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. And so the decision is made before he gets to Jerusalem. You know, who am I going to attack? The Ammonites or the Israelites? And in verse 21, which one does it turn out to be? It's Jerusalem, that's right. So finally in verse 27, a ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. This also will be no more until He comes whose right it is and I will give it to Him. Who's that? He, until he, he comes whose right it is. I, I think at this point He's talking about Jesus. I think this is messianic. God makes makes Jerusalem a ruin, and it's going to stay that way until the one who has the right to rule there takes over. That's as far as we can go. So we'll start with chapter twenty-two next time. And we'll go. We'll we'll finish this section in chapter at twenty-four, which is about Jude and Jerusalem. Then we'll start judgments on all the nations around. Appreciate everyone's help this morning.
minutes. Um, we have a visit set. Well, we have 4.30. Normally I would have announced that a week in advance. A week ago I thought you weren't going to be here, so we would go over. <laughs> now that you're here, I think. Yeah, well, we've got several things we've got to talk about. So it's <laughs> <laughs>